Right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here today. And uh, when you have a moment, we'll, we'll gather ourselves together. And we're going to be studying as we're going through the life of Christ. We're going to be studying the book of John today. Uh, this is his calling of the disciples. But uh, what I'm going to be focusing on is on a, one section there of what do you seek. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to open to John 1. We're going to be focusing on 35 and 51. It's, it's a set of, long set of verses, but it's good to read it in its context so we can uh, get, paint a picture of what's going on here. If you have your pew Bibles, it's in, uh, in the page is 751. So this is what the Word of God says. On the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cyphus, which translated Peter. On the next day, he desired to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, From where do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him and said, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you do believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Send to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And these are the words of God. And so, something I want us to think about throughout history, we had the image of Jesus is either one of three things. He's a myth, he's a man, or he's the Messiah. And Washington Post in December 18th, 2014 wrote, there are clearly good reasons to doubt Jesus's historical existence. There's a claim that, that he's a, so only a, a figment of imagination, that maybe he was something that was uh, similar to what we see the Egyptians and the pagans would have these stories, and maybe the, the, Jesus is simply a, a fabricated story. But what we see is that the story of Jesus has withstood uh, 2,000 years of intense scrutiny. 
Jesus Christ is unique in history. And with his voice rising above all the false gods, he asked the question that we see in Matthew 16. He says this, who do you say that I am? Now he is also, people say, he's just a man. This is not a new view. We see it in John 9.16 when the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. And then when he is standing before Pilate in John 19.5, and Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate says, behold, the man. But also today we see throughout history that people also claim that Jesus was nothing more than a man or a prophet. Islam says that he's merely a prophet. Well, if, he, if merely a prophet and the prophet tells the truth, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so you just said that he's the only way. You go and you see that, uh, that Jehovah Witnesses deny his divinity and many other people. And this is also happening in progressive Christianity that we see today. There's a church that I know of in South Florida that I have some co-workers that attended that church. And so I was concerned about their well-being, their spiritual well-being. So I checked them out and they, I could see that there was some false teaching going on. This was supposedly a pastor that was theologically uh, trained in a seminary, a, a good seminary. But I noticed some things, and over time, uh, I saw a decline. Uh, and then I went to their website recently preparing for this, and they completely changed their belief statement. It says this, God is in everything, and everything is in God. In other words, we're all divine. All human beings are an expression of divinity. Our minds create reality. So you see what they're doing. They're trying to say the word of God is not sufficient. It doesn't, we don't stand on the word of God. We create our own reality. God's not sovereign. We are sovereign. He goes on to say that the, the, the summit of all spiritual teaching is love. So in other words, if you say anything about sin or, or criticize anybody for sinful behaviors, then you're not loving. But in other words, they're loving people to hell. And then he goes, there are many paths up the mountain of truth, but there's, the view up the top is the same. And then he says this, Jesus is our central reference point and model for spiritual living. If you notice what he's saying there, Jesus is simply a, a reference point. He's a model. He's not God. And this is a church that has, has tons of people flooding its doors. That's the popular view. They're tickling the ear. And this view has invaded the church, and we see Newsweek reported on a 2020 survey conducted by Legionnaire Ministries that said 52% of U.S. adults say, that, say they believe Jesus Christ is not God. Nearly one-third of evangelicals professing Christians in the survey agreed that Jesus isn't God. Now that's scary. And compared to 65% who say that he was a created being. In other words, he's not eternal. But Jesus says... I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the chosen one. I am the king. And Matthew 16, 13 through 15, 16, Jesus is in, the, in, in Caesarea, and he's talking to the disciples, and he says, what, what do they say about the Son of Man? And that was Jesus' favorite term for himself. That was showing he is God in the flesh. And, he's, and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others say you're Jeremiah, and others one of the prophets. In other words, you're nothing but a man. And he says, but what do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he later goes and says, you didn't know that on your own. That's because I revealed that to you. 
And so we see that Jesus, is, his identity is revealed throughout the scriptures. And because of this, they followed him because he draws them. It, this is something that's very important. It, it's, it's the work that you were a rebel running from God, and he drew you to himself. He says that I draw, the Father draws, and I'm the one who cho- chose you. You didn't choose me. And he draws them. So they started following. They followed him because of who he is. They, it wasn't, they, they weren't ignorant of who he was. They didn't have this false Jesus that we saw in these other examples that I just said. They knew who he was. They may not have had complete clarity yet, but they knew who he was, and they wanted to be with Jesus and follow him and even die for him. They proclaimed Jesus because of who he is and what he did for them, that he had bought them with a price. And then we see in verses 35 and 36 that, that he's the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, he's considered the greatest prophet in Jesus' own words. He was the one that was paving the way for Jesus. And he's announcing, he's baptizing, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's, he's saying the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, repent, come. He's, he's coming soon. And the people were hearing this, and they had a, a huge following. And standing with him were two disciples. One was, was actually named that we'll see soon. Another one was probably John. Most theologians think it was probably John because John, who wrote this book, he would often say, you'd not use his name. He would say that I, I, the, the one that Jesus loved, or the one that leaned up against Jesus and things like that. And so it probably was John that was the other disciple. And so he, he, John the Baptist is preaching. These two disciples are with him. And Jesus is walking by and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And so what we see here is that there's this announcement, but why would he say the Lamb of God? In 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20, it says, but, the, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for your sake. He came as a lamb, to die for your sake. There was a story about a tourist that visited Germany, this, this beautiful church, and he noticed there was a carving on the top of the church of a lamb. And he was curious about this, and he asked the question, you know, what's up with that, this carving on, on this church of a lamb? And he said, well, there was a worker that was standing up on the top of this, on a scaffold, and he fell from the top of this massive church. And as he was falling, they, they ran down to see what happened to him. They expected to find him uh, dead and, and probably battered completely and unrecognizable. But they were surprised and overwhelmed with joy that he was alive. And he was only slightly injured. And they, he asked, well, how did this man survive such a, a fall? They said that a flock of sheep was passing beneath the tower at the time and he landed on top of the lamb. The lamb broke his fall and was crushed to death, but the man was saved. The lamb broke his fall. The escape, everyone, he, he miraculously escaped death, and they carved the lamb in the tower at the expected exact height where the worker fell. See, I know a lamb that was crushed because of our sins. He took upon himself the, the wrath of God, the punishment that you and I deserve. And this man is Jesus. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is divine. And in Revelations 5.12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Charles Spurgeon was a young man, and he was, he was tormented. He was seeking in his own mind some kind of peace and some kind of understanding of what was his purpose in life and where was his place in life and if God is real and all these things and if all the things he was taught by his parents, if this was true, if the Bible is true. And he walks into this church as a young man and the pastor is at the pulpit and he says, young man, you look miserable and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death if you don't obey my text. The text was, behold, look to me. And so he says, if you don't obey this moment, and if you do obey this moment, you will be saved. He then shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon said that he had been waiting to do 50 things. 50 things to satisfy God. 50 things that could earn his way to heaven. But that word look cleared the way, cleared away the clouds, and he looked to Christ, and that boy who would go on to be the greatest preacher in the 19th century was saved. And this is the same Jesus that could save you and I, and for many of us, did save us. And so the question is, what do you seek? In verses 37 and 39, if you look at those closely, you see these two disciples, and they're following along. They, they hear John the Baptist speak. They hear these words, Behold the Lamb of God. God is here? And they're, they're, they're questioning, what does that mean? What, what, let's go follow this man. And so they start to follow Jesus. And Jesus stops. He turns to them. See, that's what always Jesus does. It's, it's Jesus that does the, the seeking. At the end of the day, he turned around and, and he didn't say, who do you seek? Because he knew, you know who I am. You've been hearing this through the Old Testament. You've been hearing this through the mouth of John the Baptist. You're a disciple of John the Baptist. You know who I am. But my question to you is, what are you seeking? See, there's many people that seek God or or seem to seek God. uh, Romans chapter 3 says, no one seeks God, not even one. So how do we reconcile that that phrase there, that verse in Romans, to what we're seeing here? See, many people seek the benefits of God. They seek his peace, his joy, his prosperity. That's why churches that have these flashy uh, fog machines and rock bands and, and pastors that are ziplining down the, down the aisle and, and saying they have your best life now and all these things, they're, they're crowded. That's why they're, they're flooded with people. And they will come on every single night because they love what they hear. Don't talk to me about my sin. God loves me just the way I am, and then let's have a good old time, and then we'll have some coffee, and we'll hang out, and we'll listen to some rock music, and go home and still live like a devil. They love it. They, that's what they're seeking. And so when we, when we look at our lives, like, what were you seeking when you came to Christ? What, what, was, what was that moment like? And maybe for those that are not believers, what brought you here? Why are you seeking? Why are you even here? Why would you spend a Sunday afternoon here if you're not truly wanting to be a disciple of Christ? So you have to ask these questions. But you always see this, this response of these young men. They said this. They said, he says, what do you seek? And he said, they said, Rabbi, 
which in interesting in Hebrew, the Greek translates teacher, but the Hebrew is actually would say the great one. They're saying, great one, my teacher, where are you staying? In other words, there's, there's so much. I know that you're the Lamb of God, but I, I don't know enough. And I, don't, I can't be standing here on the side of the road to learn everything I need to learn right now. I need to spend some time with you. And this is something that's very interesting, too. We see the churches that don't come to Bible studies and don't go to prayer meetings, and they, they're ready to have a, a quick sermon, and like, let's, let's get over this sermon real quick so I can go watch the game and all this. And that's their focus. And these guys are like, no, I want to spend all night with you. I want to know everything about you. I want to, I want to just soak it all in. And so we see that they, it was about the 10th hour, about 4 p.m., and he says, come and see. I'll show you what, who I am. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you some things. And so we see in 40 and 42 this declaration of who he is once again. You're noticing something here. You're seeing that there's a proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the word. The street preacher was out preaching the gospel. And then you see that there's, this, there's the disciples, these men that start to follow. But then these, that Jesus says, come with me. I'm, I want to take you a little further. You, you're, you're limited in what you're, what you're, what you're seeking. But I'm going to take you a little further. And when, you, when I get done with you, when you really learn from me, you're going to be completely devoted and if you look at these stories of these men, if you look up the, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see how these men died for Christ because they were so devoted to him. And so you see now, these disciples are now going out and proclaiming Christ. When you learn about Christ, when you learn about what he did for you, that he saved you from hell, that he saved you from the wrath of God for all of eternity, their only option is, I need to tell somebody else. And so you see that he says, one of the two heard John speak and followed. This was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so he goes and he finds his brother, Simon. And so here we see an introduction of Andrew, and we're seeing also now he's evangelizing to his brother Simon, who we'll know as Peter. And Andrew goes and announces that they found the Messiah, which is the anointed one. If you remember throughout the Old Testament, they would anoint the kings. He's the kings. He's the king of kings. But Simon comes to Jesus. So Andrew's now discipling his brother. He's evangelizing to his brother. He brings him to Jesus. Simon comes to Jesus. But it's interesting something what he does here. He says, Simon, you are the son of John. But your name is going to be this. Cyphus, which means Peter. So what you're seeing is Peter didn't announce who he was. He didn't say his name. He didn't say who his papa was. But Jesus knew it in his omniscience. He's God. He knew it. But he didn't just know who he was, but he also knew what he was going to be. He knew what his future was. He knew that you're going to be my rock, where I'm going to, where I'm going to build my church upon, the apostles that are going to proclaim the gospel and build the church. I know who your future is. And that's the beauty of the gospel that he doesn't look at you in, your, in all your filthiness and your sinfulness. That when he 
When He calls you and He draws you to Christ and you repent of your sins, He justifies you and He clothes you with the, the righteousness of Christ. He treats you as if you lived the righteousness of, righteous life of Christ and treats Christ as if He lived your wretched life. He sees your, your future. He sees that you are not the one that, Jonathan, that was the sinner that, that was running from God, but I, I see the one that is going to be my child. Not, no longer the one who was my enemy, the one that was running from me, rebelling against me, persecuting my own people. I'm going to be the one that draws you. I see who you're going to be. He sees your potential. He sees what he's going to make you to be, conforming you into the image of Christ. And so then you see in 43 and 46, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He, he goes on, and now you're seeing this pattern. Now, Philip, so you see now on the next day, he desired to go to Galilee. He found Philip. So Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, not by coincidence, the same town from Aunt, that Andrew and Peter was from. And Philip found this guy named Nathaniel. And you'll see that there's the, Nathaniel is probably Bartholomew, which we see in other uh, Gospels. And he is called Nathaniel in this Gospel. And oftentimes they would have multiple names. That was, a, that was typical where you would have a, a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And so we're seeing that this is Nathaniel that's also known as Bartholomew in, in other Gospels. And Philip's now evangelizing to this guy. So you're seeing this pattern. God God draws them, Christ chooses them, follow me, he does a work in their heart, they know who he is, they know what he's done for them, he has to tell somebody, and they go and evangelize and make disciples. And Philip announced that they have found the one that Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. And so what we see Jesus in, in the book of Luke, when he's walking on the road with these two disciples after his resurrection, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal everything that was written about me in the, in, the, in the book of Moses wrote, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the, the Psalms and the, and the prophets, so you see the rest of the Old Testament. And, he, and after he was done with them, opening their minds and telling them everything that was uh, about him and hidden in the Old Testament, they said it was like our hearts were burning within us when they heard all these truths. And, and Jeremiah uses this, uh, this term as well, which is interesting. He says that I'm, I'm done with these people. They don't want to repent. That I'm preaching for 30 years and no one's repenting, but I have to proclaim the truth because it's like fire in my bones. And this is, you can just imagine what these disciples, they're feeling that they've encountered God. And so he goes to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is, a, is an Israelite. Uh, he, he knows the Word of God. He knows the Old Testament. He's probably well-trained in many ways. Uh, and so he goes and says, we found the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament speaks of. And he's come out of Nazareth. And sarcastically, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so what you, what you see, he was a faithful Jew. He knew the scriptures, but he was blind to understand, understanding that all scripture was pointing to Christ. See, to come from Nazareth was to be a Nazarene. And it was the same as being despised. It was like when you know these certain towns that you don't like, and you kind of, you're kind of prejudiced towards them. And you say, oh, you're from that town? Oh, what good can come from that town? And so same kind of mentality. You have this, like, this, this animosity among the people there. 
But see, he didn't realize what the Word of God said. It says the Messiah would come to save his, his people would be a root out of a parched ground. He would not be, there'll be no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that he, we should desire him in Isaiah 53 too. He would be despised and forsaken by men from whom men hid their faces and esteemed them not. So you can see here, even though Jesus was preaching and healing and doing all these things, there were people that were rejecting him. I mean, you think about, he, he provided meals for over 5,000 people. That was only women and children. And you think about after that, they had all left him. It was just the disciples that were with him. And he says, even if I do all these miracles, will, you, will anybody believe? And so you're seeing that he was rejected constantly, and Nathaniel didn't get this. But then in 47, 49, Nathaniel has an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, Behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He knew his past. He knew his heart. He knew his intentions. He knew what was inside. And Nathaniel's like, wait a minute. This guy knows what's inside of me. He, he knows where I'm coming from. And before I even said a word, where do you know me? And he says, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. And oftentimes they would sit under a fig tree and they would contemplate and ponder the, 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 the deep truths of the scriptures. And they would, they would pray and they would seek the Messiah. When's the Messiah coming? When's the, when are we going to be free from this slavery and this oppression from, from Rome? And, and here he's saying, I heard your prayer and I'm here. I saw you. But there's something that you don't, you're not getting about who I am. He goes and he reveals this to him and he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. But the thing is that you see here, Nathaniel's reply was, yes, you are a teacher, but you're more than a teacher. You are God and you are a king. But he was still limited. And so we see in 50 and 51, when we see him in all of his glory, we see that, that Jesus is announcing that he saw him under the fig tree, but then he says something very interesting. See, Nathaniel didn't recognize Jesus. He recognized him as God and king, but only as king of Israel. He was limiting him. He was saying, oh, this is the one that's going to liberate us from political oppression. He was thinking earthly, earthly kingdom. In other words, I know you're the son of God, but you are only our king. You're only for us. You would deliver us from political oppression. And then Jesus says, you believe because I said I saw you under a fig tree? I mean, you think that's the best I have? I mean, I'm omnipresent. I'm omniscient. I'm sovereign over all things. You haven't seen nothing yet. You don't understand my mission. And so he says these interesting words, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then you see that the first 37 miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospels would take place in Nathanael's own town of Cana. And, and that was in John 2, 1 through 11. In addition, Nathanael would witness countless other miracles beyond what is recorded in the Scriptures when John, at the end of this book, says in 21, and there are also many things that Jesus did in which if they were written one after another, I suppose that even the whole world itself could not contain the books that, were, that couldn't, couldn't be written about it. 
And then you see in this 51 where Jesus says this about the, the ascending and descending. What does that mean? The opened. The, uh, is, is, uh, the, in the Greek, it's the perfect tense, describing a past completed action with continual effect. In other words, once opened, the heavens remained opened. And Jesus is alluding to the Old Testament story of Jacob's ladder, and he's saying that story in the Old Testament was actually pointing to me. He's saying in Genesis 28, 12 through 15, he says he, jo- Jacob had a, a dream. The ladder stood on the earth with its top touching the heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your seed. And your seed will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. In, in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. No, nor, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I promised you. And Jesus interprets this as the meaning of, in, in the Old Testament that he, the Son of Man, the God-Man, who is truly God and truly man, is the stairs by which one can enter heaven. Only a, only a man could be a substitute for man. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. And so God had to intervene, and he took on human flesh, and he became man, and he became our stairs, our connection to heaven, so that we can connect directly to God. We don't need to go through, have sacrifices of animals any longer. We don't need to have a priest. He's our high priest. He's, he's our, our final sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God. In Daniel seven thirteen through 14, we see this vision. It says, I kept looking, looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancients of days and came near before him and to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all the peoples nations men of every tongue might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed jesus is not only god's ladder between heaven and earth who declares i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. He has dominion and has, given, has given his disciples a mission to proclaim the gospel to the nations. So that when Christ returns, we will see what we read in the book of Revelations as you're studying on, on Sunday mornings. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. It's also found in chapter 7, 13 and 14. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and purchased for God with your, your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a, a kingdom and priest to, your, to, your God, to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. We're seeing that, that promise, the promised land, is the new heavens and the new earth, where he's drawing people through the preaching of the word, through you and I, evangelizing and proclaiming the gospel and telling the good news of the gospel and drawing people to Christ. And he does the work. We just plant the seeds and we will dwell with them for all of eternity together. So what are you seeking? See, there's three types of seeking. There is a seeking soul, a person who the Spirit has drawn. Jesus said, 
I chose you, you didn't choose me. We see in, in, in Romans chapter 6, it says that, that he who he foreknew, he also called. It's him calling us and drawing us. Are you a seeking soul? Maybe you were that seeking soul and you re- recall that day of when you were running from God and all of a sudden something happened and the gospel you heard a thousand times became real to you. That's the spirit of God doing a work in your heart. That's, that's the spirit of God saying to you, what are you seeking? Come and find. Come and seek. Come and, and, and I'll, I'll give you all that you need. And when you read the scriptures, everything that you used to read that didn't make sense starts to make sense now. That, that's the power of the, God, of the spirit of God. There's the seeking Savior, Jesus, who seeks and chooses. And there's the seeking saint who goes out and proclaims the gospel. They dedicate everything to Christ. You might know of the, the comedians uh, and magicians, uh, Penn and Teller, that were famous in Vegas, things like that. But you might not know Penn is a, an atheist, a very open atheist. And he said this. He said, I've always, I've always said, you know, I don't have respect for people who don't uh, prostatize or evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, or you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this, but, it's, but it would make it socially, because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not prostatize or evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and, didn't believe, and I, you didn't believe it, that truck would bearing down at you. There's a point, there's a certain point where I would tackle you, and this would be more important than that. So this is the thing. This is what people are doing. It's interesting that Ray Comfort, who was an evangelist, met with this man gave him the gospel, and as he was departing out into the street, a bus actually did come and almost ran over him, and Ray Comfort pulled him out of there. And see, we pray that God would change his heart and that he would draw him to Christ. But it shows you that that it's a work of God that he has to be done in their hearts. And so if people are flooding to hell, if your children, your family members are flooding to hell, and why aren't we passionate about it? Where aren't we going and telling people? Why are we closet Christians? Why are we only comfortable in living for the moment, living for the earthly things, when this is of eternal value? That people's eternal life depend on the gospel that you're holding to yourself, and you're just loving them to hell. We have to be bold and proclaim Christ in all things because He is the one who has done so much for us that we must... Give our all to him. And so go to the world for the sake of his name. To every nation his glory proclaim. Pray that the spirit wise will open darkened eyes. Grant a new life to display Jesus' fame. Rescue the lost for the sake of his name. As Christ commands, snatch them out of the flame. Tell that when Jesus died, God's wrath was satisfied. Urge them to flee to the lamb who was slain. Look to the throne for the sake of his name. Think of the throng who will share in his reign. Some for whose souls we pray will share our joy that day, joining our song for the sake of his name. In Jesus' power, preach Christ to the lost. For Jesus' glory, count all else but loss. 
Gather from every place trophies of sovereign grace, lest life be wasted. Exalt Jesus' cross. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for all that you have done for sinners, that you came off of your throne and intervened. When I couldn't save myself and I was following my own ways or thought that my good works or my, my being a, a good person was getting the job done, but yet it was leading me straight to hell. When we look at your scriptures and it says that we must depend upon you, the only thing that we can contribute to our salvation is the sin within us. But Christ came, dwelt among us, lived the life that we couldn't live, and bore the punishment that we deserved, but did not remain that way. He rose from the grave so that we could be raised into a new life. We were once your enemy, but now we are called children of God. We were once not your people, but now we are, your, we are your bride, and you are coming for us soon. And there are millions and millions and millions of people who do not know you, who don't know the real Jesus. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be passionate for their souls and pray for each and every one, proclaim Christ to each and every one until the day that they die or the day that you return. And may it be for all for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.